The state doesn't take care of me. My female friends do. With these words, feminist movements gathered in cities across Venezuela to protest sexual violence on March 8, 2020, International Women's Day. From Caracas to Barquisimeto and Merida, feminist collectives are breaking the political polarization and stalemate by being at the forefront of these struggles. According to some estimates, there were a total of 391 registered femicides in Venezuela in 2019, with over 100 so far this year, and yet no official data is collected on these figures. This is why we are lucky to have with us today someone who has done extensive research and analysis on these highly unfortunate findings and can better shed a light on some of the challenges and burdens of feminist social movements in Venezuela. I am joined by Cili Fernandez. She is a Venezuelan political scientist, feminist activist, and the editor and founder of Venezuelan Voices. How are you, Cili? Thank you so much for joining Veneco Candanga and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm doing fine, thanks. So, Cili, I wanted to begin by talking a little about your organization, Venezuelan Voices. At first glance, it seems kind of like a news and analysis portal similar to Caracas Chronicles and Venezuela Analysis, but with far more nuance and perhaps a little less partisan propaganda than these other two. Can you explain to our audience what exactly is Venezuelan Voices? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, so Venezuelan Voices was born in 2019 in the middle of the electricity power outlets, uh, power that problems that we had on March. Uh, basically, because I, after more than 15 years living abroad, I was back in Caracas, my hometown. And I realized, not that I didn't realize before, of course, but I realized that the way we were being narrated out there Uh, was not really corresponding to a reality. Um, Venezuela, it's a highly polarized country. Um, it was quite uh, filled with inequalities since I was a child, but then it kind of became even more pronounced, this, uh, this polarization, um, especially with the arrival of Chavez to power. Even though, as I say, the inequalities were there before, and the way were being narrated reminded me a lot of what I had seen in other places, such as maybe Syria and the way how people, especially from the left, are portraying Bashar al-Assad and, and the opposition and what is the alternative. Uh, if you don't have Bashar in power, etc. So it felt really, really similar to how we were being narrated. And so together with another friend, we decided to create this, uh, as you say, it's kind of a news slash analysis. It doesn't really go into the news day to day, but it's more like let's reflect and narrate ourselves so that others do not have to, to narrate us in, in the manners that they do. And it is from a left-wing perspective. So it's opposition but from a left-wing perspective, which is quite different to, to what the traditional opposition is, is which is traditionally right-wing. So we wanted to, to create these voices. Uh, everything we produce or we translate into English, because for us it was important that it catered to, to an English-speaking audience. It's, uh, it's all produced by Venezuelans, so it's either um, my friend or myself, or we just translate articles that we believe are coming from this independent and left-wing perspective. And so it contains different subjects. We talk about the workers' strikes and, and the workers' uh, struggles, because this is a collective that is often neglected in Venezuela, and there's a lot of movement still happening there, especially in, for example, PDVSA, the oil state company. You, you have a lot of... Uh, of strikes and, and struggles are still happening there. 
but not exclusively. I mean, in general, there is a lot of protests still going on despite the odds and despite the situation and how hard it is. And so we want to echo that because we felt that what is available out there in English is not really telling those stories of, of the social movements that are contesting power, whether it's the power of Maduro or the power of the traditional opposition, because the traditional opposition holds power, contrary to what it likes to, to say, right? Uh, it's, a, it's often the elite. They didn't lose power uh, entirely. It's a still an economic elite. It's a still having a lot of ties with powerful nations, such as the U.S., uh, but it serves their narrative as well, obviously, to present themselves as victims. And I'm not denying that there is problems. Of course, there is. There is political prisoners uh, from the traditional opposition. There is people who have lost their lives and so on. But there is a lot going on, and that is never narrated out there. So that was the idea with Venezuelan Voices. And that's why we produce not all the time. Sometimes we go silent for a while. But it's just because our purpose is more to do analysis not so much the breaking news style. That's really interesting. It certainly seems unlike anything that can be observed for English-based news on Venezuela. There are a lot of left-leaning English-language analysis of social movements in the country that perhaps give a lot of credence and visibility to co-opted pro-government groups. So reporting like the ones seen in Venezuelan voices certainly is appealing to people like myself whose views are rarely represented in the polarized discourses on Venezuela. But I want to jump right in and talk a little more about your expertise, which is gender-based issues, and feminist collectives in particular. Can you tell us what is the current status of feminism as an organized structure in Venezuelan society? In other words, to what extent is feminism a driving tool or idea in Venezuela? Um, so basically, what I've been talking with different organizations and also researching a bit about, about the whole feminist movement in general, it's a movement that has been there, but as, as it often happens, we, we rarely heard about it growing up there. I never heard much about the feminist uh, uh, struggles and, and, and yeah, advances that we have. It's a movement that is quite atomized in the sense that it's a small little movement. It's not a mass movement like it could be in the U.S., for example, where you see large uh, masses of, of feminists uh, doing, uh, doing the work. In Venezuela, the problem uh, didn't escape, it, they couldn't escape the polarization, right? So on one hand, you had the, the women who, who are supportive or were supportive of Chavez. They were always, their demands were, were deprioritized in favor of uh, trying to fight for the survival of the men in power, right? Um, so we, we had different collectives and the, the woman has been at the center of the debate and the speech, but in reality, the demands that, that we require, uh, which are based, for example, on the warranty of sexual reproductive rights, including abortion, that has remained criminalized in Venezuela despite the so-called revolution. Individual and social rights, uh, regardless of sexual orientation, are still an issue. Uh, parity and alternation in electoral lists or, or in any space of political participation remains theoretical more than true in practice. And yeah, women have been tokenized basically by, by, the, by the government of first Chavez, then Maduro. So yeah, they are portrayed as leading the, the, the revolution and, and the, the political process. But in reality, they are tokens just to, to fit the narrative. And then on the other hand, you have the women who are followers of the traditional opposition who also have been co-opted by those leaders. 
um, basically to, to, to try to gain space for those leaders, which are mostly men. Uh, except for, of course, several exceptions, right? But in general, um, so the demands of, of women in the past 20 years have been blurred or have been yeah, deprioritized because of this fight for power. So on one hand, you have these ones trying to, to keep Maduro, first Chavez, now Maduro in power, and then you have the other ones trying to gain political spaces. But there is a history, of course, and, and we have movements coming as early as 1936. From what I've been researching, most of the feminist movements are, it's true, they are composed of middle class and university graduates, unlike other countries where the feminist struggle is led maybe more for female workers. Uh, there are exceptions, of course. We have people like Argelia Laya, who was a school teacher, Eumelia Hernandez, or Maria Leon, who were workers. But overall, it's, it's basically a small little movements that get together. It's a small but very decided group that acts when it's time to legislate or to protest for the non-application of law. So they tend to get together whenever something is at risk or when something needs to be legislated. So when there is uh, constituent assemblies and, and processes that require the, the creation of new law, then that's when you when you see the, the little groups get together. But there is plenty of them, and I think there's this new wave which are uh, inheriting this kind of orphan status that they inherit from, from just not seeing themselves represented by the traditional opposition, nor Maduro and his government. And those are the groups we are observing in the past, I would say, two, three years. More, more and more, we see them in social media because, as you know, in Venezuela, um, the, the media outlets are really not the best way for, for advocating. We don't have much. And so everything goes on in social media. And we see many, many of the groups that I mentioned on my articles um, doing an amazing work despite the situation that is going on there and making uh, very great demands and bringing all the discussion that is happening out there in feminist collectives around the world back to Venezuela. So centering the debate around consent, around abortion being decriminalized and not only decriminalized, but being ensured as a right. Quality, but true equality, because that's the problem. I think now in Venezuela, it's really hard to, for them to push their agendas because if they push uh, on one side, the pro-government people will tell them, but what are you talking about? You have all these rights, you have all these, the constitution, the laws, the representation, look how many women we have in power. But we know that those women in Maduro's government are not powerful. Uh, and then you have the opposition, which is like, come on, they're killing us, we're going in prison, we don't have any power, so it's not the time now to talk about your demands, because we need to prioritize the arrival to power. And so I think out of this orphan context is where you have the, the ongoing fights that we have now and, and the organizations. You see, that's a really interesting relational conjuncture that you bring up, because in reading your work, you would think that Venezuela is ripe for these sorts of women to flourish. I mean, it's a country that has been marketed as having this progressive ethos that facilitates participatory democracy. Even in your reporting, you mention Comadres Púrpuras, Aliadas en Cadenas, Araña Feminista, Hermanas Naturales, and the list just goes on and on, and yet... Even by regional standards, it seems to me that these collectives are largely invisibilized. They certainly haven't had the same media exposure of La Tesis, the Chilean feminist collective better known for popularizing a rapist in your path. 
or the case of the Elenao movement in Brazil against Bolsonaro. Why is that? I mean, if countries like Chile and Brazil are generally understood to have more conservative societies than Venezuela, why don't these groups in Venezuela have the same visibility than those seen in other countries? I think it has to do first with the the idea we have that Venezuela is indeed more advanced. And I think it is in some in some extent, but not as much as we would like to think. So traditionally, it's not as advanced as a society as, as we want it to be. So that why give visibility to something you don't believe in? Um, they don't believe that, uh, in general, the society there, it's, it's quite sexist still. So why give visibility to this when the issues are bigger, right? Then you have this, the, the context is really dramatic. I mean, you have a huge humanitarian crisis, uh, economic crisis, political crisis for the past decades, I would say, not just years. Um, and so, of course, their, their voice gets lost in the middle of all the tragedy. But then also, as I mentioned before, the lack of free media, right? Because right now, when you turn on the TV, all you get is soap operas or Maduro talking about coronavirus. You don't have the space. You don't see them being interviewed. You don't see them being taken seriously by journalists and asking the right questions. I mean, Venezuela, is a, it's a country where still women are killed by their partners, and th that's called a crime of passion. Uh, it's still very sexist in the lenses that journalists are using are super sexist still, and they, they just disguise it as generalized violence. So everything is so wrong that, yeah, this goes under the, under the, the rug as well, right? And so that's why for them, the, the battlefield is it's the social media, because that's where they can freely more or less express themselves. And then also uh, sometimes in the streets when they are demonstrating, like we saw at the beginning of March, or when we saw last year the performances of Las Tesis being replicated in some cities in Venezuela. Uh, but other than that, yeah, that's that's what they get. I mean, they don't get the attention because their demands are are not important for the leaders of uh, neither Maduro's government nor the opposition. So yeah, and and I I believe it's linked to the fact that also yeah we don't have uh, free media. Even even if they would be interviewed, uh, it wouldn't cause a stir in general because it's like yeah well everything is so wrong, but this is just another thing that is going wrong. But I think um, having the space they have in social media and, and they are very active now during the, the quarantine times and so on, I think that's, that's really essential. They didn't stop and I really didn't think that they might be able to continue because the situation is really dramatic. But on the contrary, I think they are taking advantage of the fact that people have, well, those who can uh, are at home and, and everyone's watching and I think they're becoming more and more popular. But why they don't talk about it out there? Also because there's an obsession with either talking about Maduro or Guaido, right? Internationally speaking, it's the only thing that they see when, when people look at Venezuela. It's either the oil crisis or the electricity crisis or what's going on between Maduro and Guaido, which also shows the sexist uh, international lenses that are being used because they, yeah, in general, uh, women's struggles are not really the priority for those analyzing the countries, right? 
So I think that's why we don't hear about them. And yeah, I always get pissed off when I hear about other countries and, and the work that feminists are doing. And I feel really bad that they are not talking about the amazing work that is being done in Venezuela by women. But hopefully it will change. Talk to us more specifically about the relationship between the Venezuelan state and working class women. On paper, the 1999 constitution expanded rights and representation for women across Venezuela. But now, in practice, there is a far darker side to this relationship. Es el estado opresor un macho violador, as the chant goes. Is the oppressive state a macho rapist? Oh yeah, absolutely. And if 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 you were a woman and you were raped in Venezuela, you would you would see it. I mean, let's start by the fact that um, when a woman taking the most extreme example, which is sexual violence. When a woman is raped in Venezuela, the first thing that no one thinks about is medical assistance, uh, which is the first thing that um, a woman needs when, when suffering a sexual attack, right? And psychological assistance. That's out of the question. I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been talking to different uh, people who, who are in charge of uh, institutions that have to do work with the police and so on. And there's a complete ignorance on this, like the medical assistance, not even a step they think about. Second, would they have what we call the PEP kits, which is the set of pills and medications you need to take to prevent unwanted pregnancy after a sexual attack or, or sexually transmitted disease? Not really. Most likely you're not going to find that and that should be not only available, but free of charge. And then the thing is that uh, the protection route, let's say, for, for this type of cases in Venezuela, it's quite legal. It's really focused on, on the legal action. No? Let's denounce the person who did this to you. But neglects entirely all this other aspect, which is the medical assistance. Um, the, let's say then that this uh, person goes actually to take legal action then you would have to deal with most likely you're going to be uh, received at the police station by a man. Uh, so they don't take into account that after, after uh, suffering such attack, maybe it would be better to be treated by someone who is female. And then, yeah, as I said in my article, I mean, in the best scenario, you will be treated decently, but in the worst one, you, the person might even flirt with you again or, or dismiss what you just suffered. And then the legal route is really, really tricky, really long, and it doesn't really ensure justice. So most likely the perpetrator is not going to be found. And if it's found and prosecuted, most likely it's going to end up in the street again. Or the woman might face threats uh, for pursuing such legal action. And this is the most extreme case. But uh, you have many other instances that show that this is just uh, on paper, right? But not really... Not really much has been done for, for, for the things and the needs that, that women have. And let's not even talk about abortion, of course. I mean, abortion is a big, big taboo in, in a society like the Venezuelan one, even though it's done, because obviously it happens as in every society. But it's not really seen from a perspective of uh, public health. Uh, which is how it must be uh, analyzed, um, because regardless of what we think about abortion, it's going to happen. And so what we should be advocating for, and especially in a place like Venezuela that in theory went through a revolution, that shouldn't even be a taboo, that, shouldn't, that should have been decriminalized a long time ago. If you're a lesbian uh, woman in Venezuela, again, good luck, right? You cannot get married, a lot of the, of the rights that you need uh, are not going to be 
enforced, right? So if you die and you want your partner to inherit, that's not going to happen because you don't have the legislation uh, to protect your partner. And yeah, uh, we could go on and on. I mean, that's, that's a reality. We're going to take a short break. We're going to leave you with the sounds of Amazonic Vibes and Simon Diaz. We'll be right back. That was Amazonic Vibes with a take on La Tonada del Tormento by Simon Diaz. And if you like what you hear, be sure to follow Amazonic Vibes on Facebook, Instagram, and wherever you get your social media. From Washington, D.C., on the microphone, I'm your host, Juan Andres Misle. And we cannot continue this episode without a special mention to Gaston Reboreo III, whose technical know-how and specialized sound engineering has contributed to the improvements in the ways we conduct our interviews. So we're back with Cili Fernandez, political scientist and creator of Venezuelan Voices. And we're talking gender-based issues and feminist social movements in Venezuela. Tell us about the case of Linda Loaiza. This is a particularly sad case of state negligence and victimization, but it's also one of historic proportions. It is the first recorded case of gender violence by the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, where a state was found guilty for its inability to prevent the abuse or investigate such a case. Can you talk to us about this case and how the Venezuelan state facilitated Linda's victimization? Yeah, that was quite a sad case that remains... uh remains uh, without uh, solution no because linda is still waiting for all the for all all that was established in the sentence uh, so the economic reimbursement and so on so basically this was a case that happened in the early 2000s um, it's a woman that was uh, severely attacked and brutalized and tortured by a man um, during, if I'm not mistaken, four months in the city of Caracas. And um, when she decided to denounce and to pursue legal action and so on, uh, and it came to the, to the public eye, it was a scandal because the man was tied to, to someone powerful, if I'm not mistaken, someone in a university. Um, and then the problem is that justice was not served. Uh, she was accused of uh, being a prostitute. I mean, she was criminalized as, as usual, because usually what, that's what happens in, in Venezuela, is that the blame is put on the victim. And in the process, I mean, she became a lawyer and everything. This took decades. I mean, the, the sentence, I think, if I'm not mistaken, is from 2018 or 2017. And this happened in 2000 or 2001. And, and so basically, uh, yeah, it's uh, in the process also, it was clear that the state was putting obstacles for this powerful man to be, to be judged, to be trialed. And so that's, that's when, you, when you see the, the difference between what the speech says and what the reality is in practice, right? Basically, that's, that's uh, in, in a very short amount that doesn't do justice to Linda's history. This is what happened. I mean, the state put all the obstacles that you can imagine for, for the men to be, to be released, to be free. And she still uh, didn't receive the payment, which amounts to a lot of money. Uh, 
I think more than the money, it's also just the recognition that the state failed, right? Because you have the human being that obviously failed, you have the society that obviously failed not only to protect that woman, but also re-victimizing it, which is a strong characteristic of the Venezuelan society, unfortunately. But then also the state failed, and it failed at a moment when a revolution was starting, because this was the early 2000s. And, and it still till now, uh, she, she's still claiming, you can find her in social media, and she's still yeah, denouncing that justice has not been served. I'm going to leave a link in the description to this episode for those interested in this landmark case at the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, but it's also an extremely heartbreaking story of this woman who was subject to months of torture, sexual slavery, and just these brutalities induced by her perpetrator. But switching gears here, what about the traditional opposition to Chavismo? You point out that with the possible exception of former presidential candidate and opposition leader Enrique Capriles, issues affecting women such as abortion rights, LGBTQ grievances, and other gender-related issues, there really is no traction, nor has there ever been any efforts to confront these issues. Are they any better than Chavismo as far as these issues? No, I, I don't think they are. The difference is that they don't even talk about it, right? So perhaps that's why they're not demonized as much as Chavismo is. I mean... Why the left is always attacked is, is because it creates hope. The right never deceives you. The right is what it is. I mean, Trump is what it is. Bolsonaro is what it is. Guaido is what it is. So they, they, don't, really, they don't really talk about that much. Um, recently, actually, there was a, a bit of a scandal because in the National Assembly, they were working on, a, on an agreement uh, regarding uh, LGBTQ people and how much they are affected by the crisis. And they still wanted to include a reference to the protection of the article in the civil code that still talks about marriage being only between a man and a woman. So that already shows you what would happen if, when they rule, right? Which is, no, they are just using maybe the LGBTQ people, movement uh, members, um, so just Tamara Adrián, just as tokens, you know, to present themselves as the true Democrats and the true defenders of freedom and so on. But in reality, no, we as women, we don't expect that the traditional opposition will take care of our rights because they also talk now as if they didn't rule before, right? And they have. So, so we know what they will do. They will prioritize other issues. And they still do. I mean, you still have some power uh, among the opposition and we don't see them really advancing those agendas or supporting um, LGBTQ people who are indeed suffering from the crisis more than non-LGBTQ. Um, you don't see them in the streets organizing uh, together with these movements when, when they could go out before the quarantine. Conveniently happen also to... To, to deter protests from happening. Um, yeah, you don't see them advancing these agendas. So, so they are not better, but I think, yeah, they just, because they don't talk about it, they don't seem as bad. The problem with Chavismo is, yeah, that they did talk about it, they legislated about it, and they do present all this diversity on paper that then in practice doesn't really get anything done, right? 
You brought up Tamara Adrián, who, for those who don't know, became in 2015 the first ever transgender woman elected to Congress in South America as a member of Voluntad Popular, the political party of Juan Guaidó and Leopoldo López. But in general, I think you're right. This is an achievement that belongs to Tamara Adrián and not necessarily to her allies in the opposition. Now, Silly, to wrap up this conversation, what is the future of feminist collectives and social movements in Venezuela? What else can be done to visibilize these struggles more effectively and create linkages across civil society to further these causes? Yeah, I think that's where the key lies for the future is how they can coordinate themselves. Because as I said, traditionally, it's a small little groups doing their thing here and there. That's the history of the feminist movement in, in the country. But hopefully this new generation, and I see them, they will link up they will and they do already. They see that no one is representing them, no one who is in power at least. And so they're transcending that. And that's really important because that's something we don't hear about in, in the political landscape in Venezuela. Everything is either or, and, and people don't dare to think about alternatives, which are just coming from the people. And hopefully they will link up uh, to workers' struggles, uh, to trans, to LGBTQ struggles, to, to many, many of the struggles that are happening because a lot is happening. It's just that it's not happening in a coordinated manner. And as I said, the absence of media really plays a big role here because if you don't see it, you don't know that it's happening. And social media, it's really, it's a good place to, to present what you're doing, but then it's really hard to, to create followers to, to have this narrative, right? And I think also it's essential that they connect to um, similar groups in other countries. That's key for them to, to learn from what the other countries are doing, to learn from other societies that also lack free media, that also have sexist uh, people in power. Uh, so they can learn, but also transmit what they're doing because it's a lot. But unfortunately, if you don't communicate about what you're doing, it's, it's really hard uh, to also gain allies. And I think uh, Venezuelan women and Venezuelan feminists, because it's not just women, um, yeah, they need a lot of allyship in moments like this when the situation is really dire for, for the country and for them, because there is um, a gender lens through which we need to see the crisis. Venezuelan women always have a different impact of whatever is going wrong in the country because traditionally the households are led by women. We have uh, among the vulnerable sectors of the society, it's always uh, women-led households, right? When you go to the barrios, you find a lot of women just taking all the, the weight of the crisis. And so I think the future, yeah, it's, it's for them to coordinate more their actions and to reach out internationally to similar groups with similar demands and, and tell what they are doing because what they're doing is really, it's tremendous. I mean, it's great with the given landscape. So there you have it. That's all we have for today. Sili Fernandez is a Venezuelan political scientist with an extensive trajectory of humanitarian work in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. And she is the founder and editor of Venezuelan Voices. Silly, thank you so much for shedding a light on these very important issues. And I wish you the best of luck with your work and, more importantly, solidarity with these struggles. Thank you so much. Reporting from Washington, D.C., this was episode 8 of Venenco Candanga, Venezuelan Democracy and Social Movements. I'm your host, Juan Andres Misle. Hasta la próxima. Que se muere, ya le
travesía mi caballo y me voy de travesía por bonita, por bonita, por bonita. Las arenitas del río corren lejos del agua. ¿Ves? 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 